Reading this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. It's on page 991 in your hymn, or on your uh, pew Bible. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among who are Hymenius and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, this day that we have an opportunity to come and to worship you. Lord, you are so good to us. You are faithful. You have kept us from trials. You have preserved us through temptations. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has chosen us and that nothing in this world, nothing in this universe can take us from your holy hands of protection. We thank you that also that you will never, never forsake us and leave us. Lord, we thank you for the many blessings you have bestowed upon us. Lord, we do thank you for uh, this church. We thank you for each other. We thank you for our pastor, Cody. Lord, I pray for him this morning. I pray for him. I pray for his, uh, his family, for his marriage. Pray that you protect him, watch over him. Uh, as he has charge over our souls and our spiritual condition. Lord, we know Satan is out there and would love to destroy him, destroy his family. So we ask that you would just uh, protect him from all uh, the fiery darts that Satan would throw at him. Again, we thank you and praise you. We ask now that you would be with Cody as he comes to uh, present uh, the word Uh, your word to us. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for his time that he has studied to bring this message. We ask that you would speak to us through him, your instrument. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This is a season of the year that is marked probably the most by one question. And you probably all heard this question because it's probably already been asked to you, if not once, many times in the last few days, last few weeks as we have gotten into December and the Christmas season. And that question is, what do you want for Christmas? We ask our children and our children ask us and we ask our husbands and our wives and vice versa and our family members, what do you want for Christmas? And the answers obviously are wide ranging. But one of the things that comes to the surface when those quest- when that question is asked, and even more importantly, when that question is answered, is what comes to the surface is what is of importance. What do I want? What do I want? What to me is of great value that you would give to me? I'm not trying to spoil your Christmas by the, by kind of slamming on that a little bit. But we are bombarded At this time of year and really all the time with counterfeit importance. Those things which we term to be of great importance. Maybe even of enough importance that we shove everything out for right now. And it it, it kind of comes to the surface in the Christmas season but it's throughout the year. Our financial security. 
We're bombarded with thinking this is of the greatest importance or our business or the keeping up with the Joneses or our hobbies or our deadlines that we have to get done to the detriment of our family or our children or our marriage. Maybe it's our expectations or goals that must be accomplished. In any way, we're barred by this idea of counterfeit importance to the neglect of recognizing that which is of first importance, which is faith and walking out that faith, the faith in Jesus Christ. And here we have this morning a call to remind ourselves to recognize, to realize that which is of first importance, that which is of most uh, eternal significance. Paul has been writing to Timothy and in many ways he's concluding his opening thoughts here at the end of chapter 1. He's encouraging him, Timothy, recognize your calling and do that which which accords with your call. And for us this morning, we have to uh, be confronted with the idea that the man of God, the, the one in the ministry, the pastor, the elders, and not only them, but the church, you all, as part of the body of Christ, is to consider of eternal importance. The true faith in Christ and the importance of a good conscience that enables the good fight of faith. Let me repeat that. The man of God and the church is to consider of eternal importance, of greatest importance, the true faith in Christ and the importance of a good conscience that enables the good fight of faith. We're not here this morning because of some figment of our imagination, as if faith and the gospel is just something that we we think about and it's a good idea, it's an ideology, it's a philosophy, and that's all that it is. No, it's so much more. It's life-changing. And the life that it changes is eternal. We look at our passage, if you're you're peering at it, I want to split the passage in half. And I want to do so in a, in a place that isn't identified by a verse. So if you're looking at the passage, which I hope you are, you'll see uh, in verse 19, it says, holding faith in a good conscience, period. And that's where I'm going to end the first section. So we're taking 18 through 19a, 18 through 19a, and we're entitling that section, a good warfare. And then 19b, which begins with, by rejecting this, through the end of the chapter, verse 20, is I'm entitling A Shipwrecked Faith. So let's look at that first section, A Good Warfare, 18 through 19a. Paul, in many ways here, is, is, is charging Timothy. He's, he's encouraging Timothy. He's giving Timothy a work. He's reminding Timothy of the work. He's strengthening Timothy for the work. You'll notice that his charge uh, originated in verse 3 and in verse 5 of chapter 1. You'll notice it there. I remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then the aim of our charge, verse 5, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he's, he's been explaining why he should defend true sound doctrine and why he should refute these men. And he's given his own personal testimony. We looked at that last week in 12 through 17. And now he's returning and concluding this idea, if you will, of reminding Timothy, I'm entrusting you, Timothy. I'm charging you. 
I'm strengthening you. I'm reminding you. You've been called to the work of the ministry. Do it. In many ways, he's he's sort of giving the the pre-game speech for Timothy, if you will. They're in the locker room. He's given the rah-rah. Go out there and do this work. You've been called to it, Timothy. Now do it. God has appointed you. That's what it says here. My, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Well, obviously the question that comes to the surface immediately is what is meant by this prophecy? Well, if you look over in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, just next page over, we're mentioning this same prophecy, this gift that has been bestowed upon him. It says in verse 14 of chapter 4, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, it's unclear about these prophecies. We don't know what they were. We're not sure who uttered them. And it seems as if these prophecies are telling us more about the call of Timothy. The call of Timothy to the ministry. And part of that call, part of that ordination, if you will, to be an elder in the church was the laying on of hands, was the praying for this man to do the work faithfully. And this call of Timothy, though external by men, was first internal by God and then evidenced by the external call by men. Meaning that the church and the elders and the prophets and the men of that day identified the gifting of Timothy for the work of the ministry. And they called him out to do that. It seems as if Timothy's ministry was one that had a witness to it. If we had time, we could go to Acts 16, where we're introduced to Timothy. And we recognize that Timothy was bearing good fruit and that his name was well known. He was doing the good work of the ministry. His abilities were identified publicly. He was engaged in the work and thus Paul brought him alongside his ministry as well. In many ways, the call internally of someone to the ministry identifies the fact that God has empowered them and equipped them to engage in the work of ministry. And part of that engaging, which we'll get to in a minute, is the good warfare, is the fighting for faith. Now, the question might be asked, Now, I didn't hear anybody stand up in front of the church and prophesy about you, meaning me, the pastor, to be the next pastor of FCM. Did we not follow scripture? No, I don't think that what is happening here is prescriptive as much as it's descriptive. Paul isn't saying this is how every church should happen. This is how it should look. He's saying this is how it has worked for you, Timothy. There were men and even there were men in this church. In fact, you all as well as the church who identified giftings and confirmed an internal call to the ministry by saying, yes, we believe you're called to the ministry. Do this work and do it faithfully. And you prayed for me. And that's in many ways, I think, what is happening here. Paul is reminding Timothy, you've been called to the ministry. It's a public one. Do the work that you've been called to. And that, in many ways, is to wage the good warfare. 
What does he mean by wage the good warfare? Well, in, in chapter 6, verse 12, he tells him to fight the good fight of faith. We're told that in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our fight is, is not a physical one. Our fight is a spiritual one. And we've been given weapons. And our weapons are based in the call of God. Our weapons are not that which we, we unsheath physically. Or that we load or that we prepare. But our weapons are that which has been given to us because of the saving grace of God that has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has called us into salvation and in that calling has given us weapons. And so if we had time, we could go to Ephesians 6 and we could recognize that all those weapons are the fruit of saving faith in Jesus Christ. The breastplate of righteousness. The belt the feet shod of the gospel of peace. The sword of the spirit. The helmet of salvation. These aren't weapons that someone can go down to Walmart and buy and put on themselves. No, this only comes through saving faith in Jesus Christ. And thus, in being saved, you have weapons and you are now in a battle. You were in a battle previous to that in your unsaved state. But now you recognize it and you are called to war. This is why we love the hymn of the faith, O Church Arise. Our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Brothers and sisters, I'm called to wage the good warfare, but in extension, you are as well. You have the same weapons I have, and you're called to use them well. This this fight for truth is a good fight. That's what he says, fight the good fight of faith. Because it's a fight to see the glory of a God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a fight to continually overcome our unbelief that says, I, I can't do this anymore. My sin is is too much. God couldn't love me. He can't use me because of my past. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. I did that one. I I I committed that sin for the fifteenth time this year. There's just no way he's ever going to be able to help me. No, this is a good fight because it's a fight to continually remind ourselves that we've been saved and we've been given eternal life. And we've been saved from so much. And we've been given so much in that saving grace. So fight well. So when you're discouraged this week, pull out the word. Call a brother or sister in the Lord. Ask them to strengthen you in this fight. My father used to tell me that you will be knocked down. But the question is, will you get back up? And by the grace of God, we continually do. Because we know that the Outcome is secure, as the hymn says. Well, notice we wage the good for warfare with two different things. One, we hold faith, and secondly, we have a good conscience. That's in many ways how we wage and how we fight for the fight of faith. Faith, as it seems here, is another term for sound doctrine. Hold to the faith. Hold the sound doctrine. 
Hold to the truth of God's saving grace found in Jesus Christ. That is our faith. That's the foundation, if you will, of sound doctrine. Thus hold to that faith. Hold to that which is right and true. And yet we also would rightly understand faith to imply a belief in God. So whether Paul is saying, hold to sound faith, hold to sound doctrine, or he's saying, hold on to that belief in God, I'm not quite sure which, either, which one he's pointing at here, but I think either apply. In a sense, they can't be broken apart. They're both needed. You hold to faith in God. You hold to what he's done. You continue to believe in him. And part of that is you have sound doctrine to believe in. And so we are to be those who are to hold firmly. So we should be those who are in the word. We are to be those who are wrestling with the truth of the word of God. And along with that holding, along with that persevering by his grace in the faith, we also keep a good conscience. We also should keep a good conscience. It's been said that one with a good conscience, quoting William Hendrickson, is the one that obeys the dictates of the word as applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit. The one that obeys the dictates of the word as applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit. Someone with a a good conscience is a person that maintains a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's conviction of truth, sin, and falsehood. So we are going to be pricked by our conscience. Our conscience is going to say, that's not in accordance with the word of God. And we are to hold to a sound faith, we are to fight the good warfare by keeping that conscience sensitive, which looks like repentance of sin, which is one of the reasons why we would have a confession of sin in our corporate service is to say, we do sin. And to keep that sensitivity to our need for Christ. We have the ability, brothers and sisters, to rebel well enough that we would deny our consciences. That it's evidence here. These men who believe that they are teaching what they should. These two examples that we'll get to in a minute, Hymenaeus and Alexandra, they obviously got to the point that they were denying a sound conscience. So let's not be those who are denying a sound conscience. Is your conscience this morning convicting you of sin? Is it it telling you that what you're doing is wrong. And you're continually saying, no, I want to keep doing that. Or are you repenting of that? Have, has your conscience got to the point where it's a, it's a barely audible detection? When it speaks, you don't get much because you've spent a lot of time crushing it and pushing it away due to your love for sin And so will you repent? And will you allow that conscience to have the voice that God has intended for the Holy Spirit to have and to convict you and respond rightly? The gospel is of that which encourages us that when we will repent of our sin, even though it may have been long and nasty, that we do yet again See the glory of Christ that has forgiven us of all of our sin. There is no sin, no matter how many times you committed it, that is outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So let us be those who are quick to respond in repentance. Well, before we approach this next section, 
19b, where we look at these two men who are examples of what not to do, bad examples, the temptation may, may arise to consider this passage in the light of a character study, as if to say, who do you want to be this morning? Do you want to be Timothy? Or do you want to be Hymenaeus and Alexander? Or would you rather not be either one of those and you want to be the super apostle, Paul? Or do you want to give the biblical answer and say, I don't want to be any of those. I want to be just like Jesus. Right? And I think we should resist the temptation to go in that direction. And here's why. No one with even the very best and wholesome of intentions has the ability to to pull up their bootstraps, to, to work a little harder, to try a little more, to spend a few more minutes in prayer or devotions and voila, you're a Timothy or you're not an Alexander. The difference between these men who are given as bad examples, Alexander and Hymenaeus, and the charge to Timothy lies in the truth that one has been called and one has been saved and equipped by God for the work of the kingdom and the others have not. Though Paul is actively working toward helping them to see their need for Christ. So that's not to say that Timothy and Paul or Hymenaeus and Alexander are not good or bad examples to consider. I I think they are. But we must first consider the principal difference between the two is less what they are doing or not doing and more of who they are or who they are not in Christ. Thus, we should wage war against false doctrine. We should fight the good fight of faith. We should seek to maintain a sensitive conscience towards sin and truth. But we must first understand that our ability to do so, as Paul is charging Timothy, and our desire to do so, is an evidence of grace. And so we thus lean hard on that grace. And may we live in accordance with the call of God upon our lives. And may we live humbly with the knowledge That his saving grace, that by his saving grace, we would have no ability. If not for his saving grace, we would have no ability or interest to live as he calls us to do. So let's look at Timothy. And let's recognize that there are men who are bad examples. But let's also recognize first that Timothy has been saved and called. And Hymenaeus and Alexander are proving by their actions to have not been. 19b, a shipwrecked faith. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are these men, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, this is a difficult verse and set of verses to understand. There's lots here, and we won't be able to unpack it to its fullest extent, but I trust be able to give us some understanding of how to look at these verses. First of all, who are these men? Well, Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy 2. 17 and 18, he has been promoting a false doctrine, principally that the resurrection of the dead in Christ has already passed. Your faith is worthless because he's already turned. They've already rose from the dead. Don't worry about it anymore. And we hear of this man, Alexander. Well, Alexander is mentioned also in 2 Timothy 4. He's another Alexander. There appears to be as many as five in the New Testament is mentioned in Acts 19.33, Alexander the coppersmith. There's at least two examples here of men who were not holding the sound doctrine. 
And I think it's less important for us to know exactly who these men are and more important for us to know exactly what they did. And that is, they were promoting that which was false doctrine. So we could get into quite the lengthy discussion of who are they and where do they live and what do they do. But let's just make it simple this morning for our for the sake of time and recognize that these are two men that are making shipwreck of their faith by not holding to faith and a good conscience. Notice Paul gives a word picture here, a very graphic picture, a shipwreck. Well, for us sodbusters, landlubbers who don't live on the sea, you've never probably seen a shipwreck, that doesn't uh, ring as too graphic a picture in our mind. Yet you can imagine Paul, who'd been in a shipwreck, understanding the graphic nature, the horrendous nature of what a shipwreck is. Of the, of the tearing and the breaking apart of a ship. With men and women in cargo uh, having their very lives in jeopardy. Of the crashing of waves and the, the breaking of thunder and lightning and the shrieking of terror. I mean, you can imagine the chaos of a shipwreck. In some small way. And yet Paul is here saying. I know what that's like. And let me just say. That a a physical shipwreck. Is far better than a shipwreck of of spiritual life. And the chaos of a spiritual life. That has hit the rocks if you will. And been blown up. Is disastrous. This is not some small thing that is happening. What these two men have done. This has eternal importance of what they're teaching and what has happened to their lives by not holding to faith and a good conscience. John Calvin in his commentary on 1 Timothy quotes a gentleman and on this topic of shipwrecked. And let me just read from him. Quote, What is human life and what is the whole of its course? A navigation not only are we travelers as the scripture tells us But we have no solidity. They who travel by land, either on foot or on horseback, have still their sure and firm road. But in the world, instead of being on foot or on horseback, we must be, as it were, on the sea, and we have no solid footing. We are like people who are in a boat, and who are always within a half a foot of their death, And the boat is a sort of grave because they see the water all around them ready to swallow them up. Thus it is with us while we live here below, meaning this side of heaven. For on the one hand, there is the frailty that is in us, which is more fluid than water. And then all that surrounds us is like water, which flows on all sides, while at every minute winds and storms and tempests arise. Let us therefore learn that our life is but a kind of navigation which we perform by water, and that we are at the same time exposed to many winds and storms. And if it be so, what shall become of us when we have not a good boat or a good pilot? He's making the analogy that every one of us are in a boat. And the only ones that get to the the harbor safely, heaven, are those who are in a good boat and have a good pilot. So let me ask you this morning, do you see your need for Jesus Christ and have you played your, placed your faith and trust in him for eternal life? That is the boat, if you will, and that is the pilot. He alone is the one who gets us all the way. He is the only one by which any man or woman or boy or girl can be saved. 
the work of Jesus Christ? Do you recognize your need for sin and have you repented of it and put your faith in Christ? Otherwise, you are like these men. You are bound for a shipwreck and it will not be that which is delightful. Paul, in many ways, here is instructing Timothy that a public defending of the faith, Timothy, refute these men, Timothy, charge these men not to teach any different doctrines. A public defending of the faith begins with a private fighting for faith. So we we wage the good warfare, we hold to a faith, we keep a good conscience. That is the basis by which we can publicly defend the faith. Hypocrisy in the ministry, hypocrisy in the pulpit should never be allowed. It should be warned against. And that warning should include the impending doom of one's ministry if hypocrisy is allowed to continue. Their faith has been shipwrecked here. Their cause of their shipwreck is is not holding the faith with a good conscience. Not holding a sensitivity to sin and falsehood. And that has produced such a contempt for God that they are blaspheming the one that they claim to be serving. Notice he says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul here is rebuking these public teachers publicly. 1 Timothy 5.20, if you just turn over there, one page over, tells us, As for those who persist in sin, and the context is elders, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Public sin is to be rebuked publicly. 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man in the church, the Corinthian church, that is living in adultery. And Paul confronts him publicly because his sin is known publicly. Remember here, Paul is referencing these two men by way of negative example to the church in Ephesus. That Timothy is to charge not to teach as these men are teaching. And look what happens to these men. And it's come off the heels of his good testimony. And Paul is handing these men over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that is a loaded sentence. What does that mean? Do we still do that today? And if so, how do we do it? Well, let's turn in our Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 5. This is probably a well-known passage by many of you. But let's look at it quickly. And I believe there we will gain some understanding of what we are to do. First Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, verse 5 is the the verse I want to key in on. It's the only other time in Scripture that Paul talks about, in in a way, handing someone over to Satan. I don't believe here that Paul possesses some extraordinary gift in order to scourge these men by way of the devil. 
I don't take this, especially in the light of the 1 Corinthians 5 passage that we just read, to mean that Paul is doing anything other than exercising his authority as a leader of the church to proclaim these men to be unbelievers by their unwillingness to repent. In effect, he's exercising church discipline. He's saying, by your unwillingness to repent, we're declaring you to be into the kingdom of darkness rather than in the kingdom of light. When you're in a church, when you're a member of the church, when you're a saved believer in Jesus Christ, and you're especially those who are represented in a local church, what we're declaring every single morning together is, we're in the kingdom of heaven. We're in the kingdom of light. And yet there also has to come, uh, with that, come a realization that we're not God, we're not the Holy Spirit, we can't see your heart, and we don't know for sure. Only God knows whether or not you're truly saved. And thus he's given us the ability, in a way, to continue to work for the purity of the church if one of us will not repent of our sin, continuing to flaunt that, we have to come to the point where we say, your life, by your testimony, by your fruit, is declaring you to be an unbeliever for the purpose of restoration. Specifically, their discipline was on the grounds of blasphemy, that they spoke ill of God or mis- misrepresented his truth. They wouldn't stop, and thus Paul is stating them to be those who are unbelievers. He's putting them out of the church, if you will. Now, Matthew 18 is another passage we we could go to on church discipline. And if you've not heard that word or not familiar with that doctrine, there's lots to be studied on that. But essentially, private sins to be handled privately. And if that private sin cannot be handled privately to the point that we're continuing to exhort a brother or sister in the Lord to repent of their sin out of love for them and desire for the purity of the church, out of love for them and desire to restore them to sound faith and a good conscience, we get to the point over a, quite a period of time, depending upon the sin, where we have to come to them and say, we believe that you're unsaved by your unwillingness to repent. And thus out of our love for you, we're going to warn you to such an extent that we believe your sin is of eternal significance and because you won't repent of it, we're telling you that you're no longer part of this church. Calvin says it well. The greatest injury done by wicked men is when they mingle with others under the pretense of holding the same faith. The greatest injury done by wicked men is when they mingle with others under the pretense of holding the same faith. And thus we have to have some way to help this body, this church, continue to be a pure body and not allow the wicked men to continue to stay within the church. And thus, that is church discipline. Now, I've scratched the surface just a bit, probably enough to uncover quite a bit. And we can answer that more on Wednesday or talk to me afterward. But let me just address one piece of application that comes up, I think, probably when we're hearing this. The question is this. How am I to treat someone who has been disciplined and removed from a church that is not my own. I have a friend, let's say, who's been removed from another church by the act of church discipline. How am I to treat that person if they're not, were not disciplined by my church? And let me just say, I think you should treat them very, very carefully. Very, very carefully. Yes, That church is not perfect and they could have used church discipline as a power play to remove someone who was asking too many questions. 
And there really wasn't sin. But we should be those who should proceed with extreme caution. Why? Because the purpose of the discipline is to make clear of the need for someone to repent from sin. A repentance that is in accord with someone that has been saved by the grace of God. And if they will not repent, after repeatedly being encouraged and warned, then the church must declare them to be an unbeliever based upon their fruit and remove them from the church from the name of Christian. So then if you're to treat that person as a believer, knowing they are under discipline, you may be aiding their eternal demise. So we should proceed very cautiously, asking lots of questions. Has the individual repented? Have they been reconciled to the church to which they were disciplined? Have you talked with that church? Have you asked the person for their side of the story and then got clarity from the church in the spirit of Proverbs eighteen seventeen? Let's be clear. Sin is gross and nasty and muddy and dirty. And if we get into someone that has been disciplined by church, no, it's not going to be a clean work. But it is a good work. And if we love that person, we will get involved, but we should proceed very cautiously. That's all I will say on that for this time. There's lots of application for you all as well and how you handle me as your pastor and elders to come. Hold me accountable to not only proclaiming the truth but also refuting false doctrine and false living to the point, if need be, that my love is evident for someone that I will discipline them with you as well. Don't let me just be someone who stands up here and has a sermon that happens to be good every once in a while But let me also be, hold me accountable to being in the pew with you and helping and refuting false doctrine and false living as necessary. This passage, brothers and sisters, should rightly sober our understanding of the necessity of a good conscience, of humbling our prideful selves and repenting of sin, especially well-hidden sin. We don't have a timetable on these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and how long they denied a good conscience. But we do see their ultimate end. They were removed from the church. They were declared by the church to be unsaved. We should get the, the strong understanding that sound doctrine has eternal ramifications. Our words are not pure words. Only God's word is pure. And therefore, even these men who are being charged with blasphemy, we should be very careful in what we casually proclaim about his word and an assumption that it's true. We probably all could be millionaires if we had the uh, a nickel for every, every single time someone said, pride goes before fall. That's what the Bible says. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We should be very careful with how we speak about God's word. Here at the end of chapter 1, Paul concludes his opening grounding foundational instruction that will set up the rest of this letter. letter. Timothy, charge certain persons to not teach false doctrine. Timothy, recognize that false doctrine cannot produce the transformative results of the gospel of Jesus Christ as evidenced in my life. Timothy, remember you have been called by God. Do this work. It's a good and noble work. And for us this morning, brothers and sisters, the work of the church, the work of the purification of the bride of Christ for the glory of God is a good and noble work. 
The work of ministering to one another and encouraging one another each week throughout the week is a good and noble work. Let's be those who are this week who are helping one another fight the good fight of faith. May we be those who are helping one another understand good and sound doctrine. And may the body of Christ be an immense well of grace that I trust if we will not fear to draw deeply upon will help us and even delight us as we continue to pursue earnestly the glory of God in our daily lives and in this church life. Let's pray. Father, I confess that this passage is weighty. I don't presume to have given it the justice it deserves, but I trust by your Holy Spirit that you will land upon the heart of the believer here that which is needed. Father, it's clear to us this morning that sound doctrine is of eternal importance. That holding to the sound faith, that clinging to Belief in Jesus Christ and the work that has been accomplished for us. That fighting for a good conscience and humbling ourselves and repenting of sin is not a work we sometimes do, but is a work that we always should be doing. And Father, we have the sober reminder here of two men who slipped in their duty. And we pray that you would guard us against that. And we're grateful, Father, that our faithfulness, our holding to your faith is empowered and will be kept to the end because you hold us. But we want to be those who are faithful. And we ask that you would help us. Father, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your glorious light. That the work of the ministry, whether from the pulpit and the pastorate or the work of the ministry in the pew, is a calling. And it's a calling that we've not signed up for on our own, but one that we have been, been given a delight to do. We've been equipped to do. We've been strengthened through this work and help us to do it well this week. We thank you for your grace that is greater than, than all of our sin. And we rejoice to know that we have the good, the good sound doctrine. We want to wage the good warfare. We want to tell others about it this week. We want to be those who have the good news on our lips. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.